0: Would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God and open your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy chapter 4, we will read verses 1 through 10. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I commanded you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor, For all the men who followed Baal Peor, the Lord your God, has destroyed them from among you. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them. For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today. Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. But make them known to your sons, And your grandsons, remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. This is the very word of God. Would you pray with me? Our great God in heaven, as we bow before you on this Lord's day, we come before you with a sense of fear and trembling. We know that you have given your word to us in part, that we might learn to fear you all of the days that we live on the earth. We acknowledge that you are the holy God, that you are the thrice holy God, that your name is holy, that there is no one like you, that you are exalted over all of the nations, that you are seated on your throne at this very moment from which you rule Over all of your creation. You are the majestic, sovereign Lord of all. And what is more, you love us. You have made us to be your people, you have made the church to be your holy nation. You have given to us your law and your word that is to be our wisdom and our understanding. And we are to obey your word from the heart, and we are to do it with joy. Father, we thank you for the great responsibility that we have to not only teach ourselves your word, but to teach our sons, our daughters, our grandchildren your truth. And I pray that today that you would impress upon our hearts this great responsibility that we have to entrust the next generation with your truth. That we would be faithful to instruct and to model your word before the children and grandchildren that you have put into our lives. Father, we entrust our children and grandchildren to you even now. And we pray, whether they are young or even adults, that you would please be gracious to them. That if they do not know you, that even this morning you would draw them to yourself. That you would be pleased to give them life where there is death. That you would be pleased to give them faith and hope in Christ. Father, we pray that none of our children or grandchildren would ever perish, but that they would truly come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we give ourselves to you. We honor you. We exalt you. We desire more than anything else to please you. And Father, we thank you that you have given your own Son to be our Savior. We thank you that his blood is sufficient to pay the price for all of our sins so that we might stand before you righteous in Christ. And so, Father, we recognize very deeply that the only way that we could ever pray to you or approach you or offer worship to you is only through your Son, our Savior and Mediator, we pray that the Lord Jesus Christ will be praised on this Lord's Day, not only here, but everywhere that your people gather, all across the globe. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. It is a joy to be back with you in the book of Colossians. And so I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 3. And I would direct your attention to verse 21. The title of our message is The New Humanity at Home, Part 9. And as we begin our time in the Word of God together, I would like to read verses 20 and 21 in your hearing. The Apostle Paul writes, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. This is the Word of God. I read an article this week that stated the leading cause of death worldwide in 2019 was abortion. It is estimated that 42 million babies were aborted last year around the world, far outnumbering every other cause of death. That is a profoundly tragic reminder that the world is a dangerous place for children. It is also a reminder that the church in general and the Christian home in particular ought to be a safe place for children. As Christians, we ought to care very deeply about protecting our children, and that is essentially what Paul teaches in Colossians 3.21. As Christian parents, we are to strive to avoid sinning against our children. Since it has been a few weeks since we were last in Colossians chapter 3, I remind you that in verses 1 to 17, the Apostle Paul addresses the church as a whole on matters of Christian living and practice. One of the things he teaches is that we are a new humanity in Christ, And then beginning in verse 18, Paul begins to address specific groups of people within the church, wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, and masters. In so doing, he is really addressing three relationships of people within the church, the first of which is the marriage relationship, and the second is the parenting relationship. In both of these relationships, Paul shows what the new humanity looks like in the home. In verse 20, Paul directly addresses the children of the church. As we learn from our study of that verse, number one, the most important relationship that children have other than their relationship with God is their relationship with their parents, not their peers, not their friends, but their parents. We also learn that the one overarching responsibility that God gives to children is to obey their parents at all times in all things without delay without arguing without excuses and with a happy heart. They are to do this because it honors their parents because it is good for them but above all because it pleases God their maker. Well that brings us once again to verse 21 where Paul directly addresses the fathers of the church. We are looking at this verse under two headings, the first of which we looked at last time, Roman numeral one on your sermon notes, the address to fathers. And you will notice that instead of addressing both parents, as we might expect, Paul specifically addresses the fathers, he does this because fathers are the head of the home, they are the leaders of their family. And while it is true that both parents are responsible for raising their children, ultimately this responsibility falls on the shoulders of fathers. This idea was countercultural and even revolutionary in Paul's day. In the culture of the first century Roman Empire, it was expected that children had responsibilities to their parents, especially to their fathers, but it was revolutionary to say that fathers also had responsibilities to their children, as Paul says here in Colossians 3, 21. Well, that brings us to the second heading, which we began to look at last time, the warning to Fathers, the essence of Paul's instruction to fathers is indeed a warning. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Now, Paul doesn't instruct fathers to lead their children because their leadership role is already assumed. Instead, Paul's greatest concern about fathers is how they would exercise their parental authority. And therefore, he warns fathers against the abuse of their God-given authority. God has given authority to fathers in the home, but he has not given fathers the authority to do whatever they wish. Instead, their authority is to be governed and restrained by grace and love. I deeply appreciate how Paul expresses great tenderness and care for children in this warning. Again, if there is ever to be a safe place in the world for children, it ought to be in the Christian home. Paul warns fathers not to cause their children to lose heart. In other words, fathers are to parent their children in such a way that their children don't become discouraged or frustrated or disheartened or resentful or bitter. It is not uncommon for children to grow up resenting their fathers, even all of their days. And the way to avoid this is by not exasperating them, by not embittering them, by not provoking them to anger. And so this is a warning, but it is a gracious warning. It is a necessary warning. It is one that we need to hear desperately. Now, while Paul is directing his address to fathers in particular, what he says certainly applies more broadly to mothers and to grandparents and to anyone who knows and works with children. The essence of Paul's warning is that parents must not use their parental authority in a way that causes unnecessary anger in their children by parenting sinfully. As we said last time, there are lots of landmines in the soil of parenting that must be avoided lest we provoke our children to anger. And so I have put together a list of things that parents can do that provoke their children to anger that we must avoid this is really sort of applying colossians 321 to us in a, in a quite comprehensive way we looked at the first 5 things on our list last time. You can see them on your notes. Number 1 showing favoritism, number 2 comparing your child to other children especially in front of them, number 3 pushing achievement beyond reasonable bounds, number 4 failing to give verbal encouragement, and number 5 making them feel unwanted. If parents do these things, you can be sure it will provoke their children to anger. Now, this morning, we are going to finish the list that I have put together of things parents can do to provoke their children to anger. It is a list of 20 things, and this is my short list. I had to make it sort of more manageable and reasonable for the amount of time that we have together. So that brings us to number six in our list, verbally abusing them. If you use words that put your children down if you are sarcastic with your children in a mean way, if you call them things, call them names, if you say things to them like, you're an idiot, you're so stupid, you can't do anything right, you're such a baby, you'll never amount to anything, etc., etc. If you say those kinds of things, you will provoke your children to anger. As a general rule, Christians are to... Tame the tongue, James chapter 3 tells us. Every word that comes out of your mouth ought to be intended to edify the one that you are speaking to, Ephesians 4.29. And so our words as parents ought never to tear down but build up. They ought to be a fountain of life, not weapons of destruction. And so parents, you need to be very careful about the things that you say to your children. You need to be very careful that you do not use your tongue as a weapon to inflict harm on your children. Don't yell at your children unless it's an emergency. Don't scream at your children. Don't call your children derogatory names. Don't mock them. Don't make fun of them. Do not verbally abuse your children in any way, lest you provoke them to anger. Well, number seven on our list, physically abusing them. It should be obvious, but it needs to be said that parents have no right to physically abuse their children. Now, this does not mean that corporal punishment is wrong. I want to be very clear on that. There is definitely a place for spanking children, especially when they are younger. But when it comes to disciplining our children, our first response should not be to spank. First, clearly explain to your children what is expected of them. If and when they disobey, the first means of corrective discipline is to give them a verbal warning in love. And then if they continue to disobey, then you must apply corporal punishment. And the book of Proverbs talks about this a number of times. Don't spare the rod and those kinds of things. Now, admittedly, this is a very unpleasant part of parenting. I don't know of any parents who enjoy this part of parenting, But it is necessary because as a parent, it is your responsibility, listen to this very carefully, it is your responsibility to restrain your children from sin. That is your responsibility. You as a parent are to teach your children that sin is painful, that sin brings bitter consequences. And so corrective discipline, including corporal punishment, is intended by God as a means of teaching your children that the way of sin is hard, and that they should not go that way. It has been said that a paddle is the board of education, and that is right. It is intended by God to be instructive. If you look on your sermon notes, there is a great quote from the Puritan Thomas Guthrie. He says, if a parent does not punish his sons, his sons will be sure to punish him. That is very powerful. In other words, if you don't apply corporal punishment and discipline, corrective discipline, upon your children when they are young, when they grow up, they will punish you. But when you spank your children... Do not use excessive force. And do not spank your children in anger. That is a very dangerous thing to do. Do not discipline your children when you are out of control. And that is a very easy thing for a parent to become out of control in a disciplined kind of a situation. Sometimes parents need to take a time out. Sometimes I need to take a time out. Regain control of yourself. And then proceed with applying corrective discipline. Whatever means of discipline you use with your children, always do it in love. Always do it in love. On your notes, you'll see the quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones who says, What right have you to say to your child that he needs discipline when you obviously need it yourself? That's very humbling. When it comes to corrective discipline, parents can fail in one of two ways very easily. Number one, by being overly permissive and by tolerating sin in their children, by not disciplining their children when it is necessary. And the other way is by being too harsh with their children. And so when you discipline your children, you are to do so in love. When you spank, you are to spank in love. If you are too harsh and too severe in your discipline, then you will provoke your children to anger. So you can think about these two ways that parents can fail. One could be parenting like a hippie, just tolerant. And the other would be parenting like a drill sergeant. And you don't want to do either one of those. They are both terrible mistakes that parents can make in their parenting. Well, number eight in our list is applying inconsistent discipline. When it comes to corrective discipline, parents must be consistent. Sometimes parents will ignore their children's sin one day, but the next day when they commit the very same sin, the parents act like they're going to enforce the death penalty on their children. And when parents do that, they are sending mixed messages to their children. It leaves them confused. They don't know what to expect, and it can provoke them to anger. You can also be inconsistent with your discipline when you don't apply the same standard with all of your children. For example, if you discipline one of your children for a particular sin, but don't discipline another one of your children for doing the exact same sin, that is inconsistent discipline. And it will provoke them to anger. Number nine is making light of their problems. As an adult, you have your share of problems, and so do your children. But sometimes it is tempting for parents to make light of their children's problems and to blow them off. You must keep in mind that while your child's problems might seem very small and trivial to you, they are not small and trivial to them. And so it is important as a parent to be tender-hearted to take seriously your children's problems, listen well, comfort them, and be a help to them lest you provoke them to anger. Number ten, making promises and not keeping them. As a general rule in life and especially in parenting, do not make promises that you either don't intend to keep or can't keep. It is far better to make no promise at all than to make a promise and not keep it. As a Christian, you must do what you say. Truth-telling must be that vital to you, that when you say that you're going to do something, then you do it. Your words must be reliable. And so if you promise your children that you are going to do something with them or for them, then do it. If you promise that you are going to take your child out for ice cream on Friday night, then do it. If you promise that your child is going to play on the sports team, then do it. Don't promise one thing and then do another. Keep your promises to your children, lest you provoke them to anger. Number 11 is lacking marital harmony. Every marriage has its difficulties. If you are married and you have no difficulties, please raise your hand. (laughs) That's a joke because there is no such thing as a marriage that doesn't have difficulty, at least one that's not five minutes old. Even the best of marriages have difficulties. That's just the way it is. It's one sinner married to another sinner. But parents must be very careful how they handle their problems around their children. One of the most disturbing things a child could ever see in the home is their parents fighting in front of them. As I was putting this list together, I thought how One of my earliest memories, I don't remember exactly how old I was. I was a little boy living in Houston at the time. But one of the earliest memories that I have was a terrible fight between my parents. It was very traumatic. So traumatic that I remember it over 40 years later. It is such a disturbing thing for parents to fight, to have conflict in front of their children. And so parents, you must be very careful how you treat each other and how you speak to each other in front of your children, lest you provoke your children to anger. Your marriage ought to be a model of love and harmony in front of your children. That is what you are to model. Now related to this is number 12, modeling sinful anger. There is a principle that we see when it comes to sinful anger, and that is this. Anger begets anger. Anger begets anger. If you show me an angry child, it is likely that I could show you an angry parent, because anger begets anger. When a parent exhibits sinful anger, anger either toward their children or around their children, he or she is teaching the children to respond to problems with sinful anger. When a parent is generally angry in their demeanor, when he or she displays anger in their words or in their facial expression or in their attitude, this begets anger in their children. I heard an adult recently say that when they were growing up, the way they remember their father is that he seemed to always have a smile on his face. And I thought, you know, that's how I want my kids to grow up. I want my kids to grow up and think back on their mom and dad as people who had smiles on their face, who were happy people, who modeled that before them. In the home. And so I ask you do your children see you smiling? Do your grandchildren see you smiling? Is that how they see you? Is that how they will remember you? If you are the kind of parent that never smiles, that never laughs, that never seems to be happy, that always has an angry scowl on your face, that consistently speaks and acts in angry ways, then mark it down, you will provoke your children to anger, because anger begets anger. Your home ought to be a place of peace and joy, not sinful exhibitions of anger. On your sermon notes, you will notice the couple of quotes underneath number 12. Andrew Combs says, What we desire our children to be, we must endeavor to be before them. That's quite convicting. And then Andrew Murray, the secret of home rule is self-rule. First, being ourselves what we want our children to be. That's very powerful. Well, number 13, living hypocritically or having double standards. When parents preach one thing to their children and yet practice something else, that is hypocrisy. That is a very ugly sin. And children are very good hypocrite detectors. They're like bloodhounds. They can smell hypocrisy in their parents. Your children will learn far more from your life than they will from your lectures. Especially if your lectures don't match your life. And so you can tell your children that loving God is the most important thing in life, but do your children see you loving God? You can tell your children that reading the Bible, studying the Bible, and praying are vitally important. But do your children see you studying the Bible, reading the Bible, and praying? You can tell your children that they must always tell the truth, that they must never lie, but do your children see you telling the truth? What are you teaching them from your example? If I were to ask your kids today, what is most important to your parents? What would they say? What would they say? It should be obvious to your children that the most important thing in your life by far is God and the things of God. There should be no question on this. But if you live as a hypocrite, if you live with double standards, one standard for you and another for your children, it will provoke them to anger. Number 14, failing to admit when you're wrong and not asking for forgiveness. It is so easy for parents to point out the failures of their children but never admit their own failures. And so are you quick to discipline your children when they are wrong but slow to admit when you're wrong? No matter what your role is in the family or what your age is, wrong is wrong and right is right. And so as a parent, when, not if, when you do something wrong, toward one of your children, when you sin against your children in some way, humble yourself, go to God, confess your sins to God, and then confess your sins to your child or to your children. Say to them, you know, I I did not handle that right. I didn't say this right. I didn't do this in the right way. I did this just the other day with one of my own children. I think it was a Sunday morning. Getting ready for church and something happened and I got impatient and exhibited sinful anger as we were loading up in the car and I had to take that child one on one and ask for their forgiveness and confess my sin to them. And so as a parent you must ask your children's forgiveness. And when you do this it will soften their hearts. But if your child never hears you admit when you are wrong, if you fail to ask for their forgiveness when you sin against them, it will provoke them to anger. You can mark it down. Whether you admit it or not, your children know when you have done something wrong. They know when you have sinned against them. One way to think about parenting is like this. It's older sinners raising younger sinners. There's just sin from both directions. And so, yes, parents are in a position of authority, but parents must also be willing to humble themselves before God and even at times before their children and confess their sins to them, lest you provoke them to anger. Number 15 is failing to make time to talk with and be with your children. The other day I was with my kids, and we were in a part of town where I grew up off of Colquitt Road, not too far from here. We had extra time, so I took them through my old neighborhood. And I said, there was the bus stop, and there's where so-and-so lives, and there's where so-and-so lives. And there was one house we drove by, and it was the house of a kid that I grew up with who doesn't live anywhere near here. His name was Eddie. And I told my kids, he was the angriest kid in the neighborhood. And whenever we would go to his house and we would see his dad, his dad seemed to have no desire whatsoever to ever talk with him or to ever do anything with him. In fact, as kids, I mean, we weren't real kind to each other. We began to call Eddie's dad no talk because he just didn't talk to Eddie. He never talked. He always had the newspaper and he never put down the newspaper to acknowledge Eddie or to talk with him. It was really a sad thing in hindsight. And so as you think about that kind of thing, as a parent, cultivate cultivate a relationship with your children. Make time to have unhurried And meaningful conversations with your children, especially as they grow older, that go beyond the superficial level. As a parent, you you need to study your children. You need to learn what they are like and the things that they like. And you need to talk about those things with them and do those kinds of things together. You need to have fun together. Even be silly together. I love to be silly with my kids. This morning, as I was shaving, this may be a little bit too much information, I had all the stuff on my face, the shaving cream, here comes Sierra, and I wanted to give her a kiss with shaving cream on my face. Just being silly, having fun, being light with kids, smiling with them. Those things are very important. So here's a good question to ask. When was the last time you sat down and had a real conversation with your children? Or when was the last time that you did something with your children that they wanted to do? If you do not make time to talk with your children, and if you do not make time to do things with your children, things that they like and enjoy, you will provoke them to anger. Number 16 is withholding physical affection. Now, I realize that there are some people who are more naturally, physically affectionate and some who are not, but whether you are naturally affectionate or whether you are not, it is important that you show some measure of physical affection to your kids. Hug them, kiss on them, wrestle with them. My two youngest girls, one of the things that we do often is wrestle It's funny because they're little girls and they like to fight and punch and kick and wrestle. And sometimes I have to tell them, tone it down a little bit. I'm not not a spring chicken anymore. But it's that physical affection, that physical interaction, that's an expression of love for one another. If you don't do those kinds of things, you may very well provoke your children to anger. Number 17, focusing only on their negative traits. It is so easy, it is so easy to focus on the negative qualities of other people, including your children. And so work hard at looking for and pointing out good qualities and positive traits in your children. Say to them, you know, I really like this about you. I really appreciate when you do this. Find something that is positive. Find something that is virtuous and express that to them. Do your children know what you like about them? Do your children know what you appreciate about them? Do your children ever hear praise from you whenever they do well and when they succeed? If your children only hear you speak about what they do wrong, It will provoke them to anger. Related to this is number 18, making them live in their failures. If you want to provoke your children to anger, never let them forget where they have failed. If you pull out their rap sheet every time they fail and remind them time and time again of their failures... You will provoke them to anger, to terrible anger. So there's some overlap here, but praise them when they do well. Praise them when they succeed. And strive to be patient when, not if, but when they fail and when they mess up, lest you provoke them to anger. Number 19, being impossible to please. Sometimes parents can be impossible to please. And that is a terrible kind of a situation. If your children feel like they can't ever do anything right in your eyes, no matter how hard they try, it will provoke them to anger. One of the worst things a parent can do is make their children feel like like you're never happy with them. When nothing is ever enough. And so encourage them every chance that you can get. Let them know when you are pleased with them, lest you provoke them to anger. And then finally, last but not least on our list, number 20, always saying no. Sometimes parents have a very difficult time saying the word yes. I mean, it's just so hard to make that word come out of your lips. Y- yes. Sometimes parents say no so often to their children that onlookers might think their children's name is no. Ian, no. Sophia, no. Sayla, no. Sierra, no. Aiden, no. We can fall into that rut as parents. And so try to say yes as much as is possible and save the no's for when they really are needed. If you always say no to your children, you will provoke them to anger. Now, parents, I offer you a challenge. I've done this with the wives and with the husbands, and now I want to think about the parents, Carve out time with your child or your children soon. Sit down with them and ask them if there are things that you do that provoke them to anger. And try to overcome those things by the grace of God. Humble yourself. Be a gracious parent. It is so easy to sin in our parenting There are so many landmines to avoid in the soil of parenting. There are so many things that we must not do in our parenting. But I do want to end on a positive note because all of this is quite negative, but that's the essence of Paul's warning. Elise Fitzpatrick has written a book on parenting called Give Them Grace. And I really appreciate that title, Give Them Grace. I think if you were to take Colossians three twenty one and rephrase it in a, in a positive way, it would read something like that give your children grace. One of the most important things you can do as a parent is to be a grace giving parent, to be gracious in your dealings with your children. To show your children what the grace of God looks like and how you live and how you treat them. To show them what the grace of God in Christ looks like in your marriage and in your parenting. Here's a very important thought: strive to treat your children the way God treats his children, and that is by being gracious. And so are you a gracious parent? Do you strive to show your children grace the way God shows grace to you? That is a great standard, but it is the standard to which God calls us. Well, as we think about the grace of God to us in Christ, this morning it is our privilege to worship the Lord through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And as we come to this table, we are reminded through the elements that the holy God, the king of heaven, the one that we have offended by our many sins, is also a God of mercy and love and grace, and that he has provided a way of salvation for sinners like you and like me, and that way of salvation is by the giving of his son. We just celebrated Christmas, we celebrated the birth of Jesus into the world, and as we noted at Christmas time, Jesus was born to die. He was born to die in the place of sinners. And so he lived a perfectly righteous life. He obeyed the law of God at all points without ever sinning. And then he gave himself up in death on the cross. And on the cross, the God of heaven took the sins of everyone who would ever believe, and he laid those sins upon his son. And he punished his son in our place so that we might be forgiven and have the gift of everlasting life. As we come to this table, we celebrate the death of Jesus in our place. We are reminded of his body, which was nailed to the tree. And we are reminded of his blood that was shed for our sins. This is a time for joy and rejoicing and celebration, but it is also a time to prepare our hearts. And so if you are an unbeliever and you are here, we thank God that you are with us today, but we would ask that when the tray comes to you that you would pass it on to the next person because the Lord's Supper is only for believers. And if you are a believer, we want to take a few moments now to prepare our hearts so that we eat and drink of the supper in a way that is worthy of Christ.